This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Ghanem. I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really exciting show today. We're going to be uh, speaking with uh, Hoeda Araf. You did an amazing interview with her. Hoeda is a human rights attorney and activist who is running for Congress. And this is at a time that is, you know, kind of interesting for a woman of color, Palestinian, to be running for Congress. So we're going to be hearing from uh, your interview with Hoeda. And then after, afterwards, we'll use that as a segue to talk about what the Democrats are facing in the midterm elections in 2020. You heard me say last week and the week before, I have every belief now that the chances of Donald Trump becoming our next president are much greater than just 50-50. And that also includes a prediction that the Republicans could take over the House and the Senate. So we'll be talking all about that. And then lastly, if there's time, you know, we should talk a little bit about how the U.S. military covered up a massacre, airstrike that killed, you know, Syrian civilians. Uh, they covered it up and it's recently been unearthed, the the cover-up of the killing of these civilian uh, Syrians. So, uh lot to talk about today. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. And I think the last story is very important. This is, uh, I mean, the question is here, really, uh, whether the United States uh, has committed war crimes. Yeah. And, and covered it up. I mean, yes. we're talking about this, you know, we hear about this, something that happened 2019. Yeah. And then well, all of a sudden uh, this surfaces and we have... And, and and we'll talk about it more in details because they've initially claimed there was one civilian killed and now we're finding that dozens were killed. Exactly. And that's really serious. And then I have a question for you, which I don't need you to answer it now, uh, <laughs> Jess, but since you are from Michigan, yeah, my question to you, is Michigan ready for two Palestinian Americans in Congress? And then you don't have to answer this now. I have a lot so to first, say. So yeah. first, let's let's watch and listen to Huayda Araf, who is running for Congress in the tenth district in Michigan. I've been beaten, shot at, imprisoned, and hijacked at sea, standing up to injustice on the global stage. I'm not afraid of a fight. Today, I'm announcing my campaign for Congress. In Michigan's 10th district, our guest, human rights advocate and attorney, Huayda Arraf, tweeted this on the 10th of November. Welcome to Arab Talk, Huayda. Thank you for having me, Jamal. First, let me congratulate you on your decision to run. This is not an easy feat. Uh, you've been on the show before as a human rights activist and a, de a Democratic National Convention delegate uh, from Michigan. Now we'd like to learn more about your candidacy for Congress. So let me begin. What motivated you to throw your hat in the ring? Well, uh, thank you for that question. The, you know, I, as you mentioned, I am a human rights activist and attorney, and I have spent most of my adult life campaigning for human rights, both in the streets and in the courtroom using the law. When COVID hit, I had to leave my job as a civil rights attorney in the United States uh, to be with my kids and to help them through homeschooling. And when it came time to, when I was able to go back to work, I started thinking about where I could make the most impact. And the law is one way. 
we have laws that are supposed to uh, uphold and defend people's human rights and their civil rights. And that's, you know, what my area of work was. But also the law, especially in uh, international human rights law, it, it all depends on political will. If there is political will to enforce it. And when you're talking about domestic law, also the law, unfortunately, sways with the, the political climate. As we see now, a lot of our rights, our, our right to vote, our right to bodily integrity, to adequate health care is at risk because of laws that uh, um, legislators are passing and because of uh, the kinds of judges now, unfortunately, that we have on a lot of the federal benches that were appointed by the last administration and that tend to have more um, extreme views that don't align with uh, upholding civil rights and, and human rights. And so I thought I could go back to the law and, and fight that way in the courtroom and continue my activism in the streets, or I can try to become a legislator, uh, legislator which we've had, you know, we've had extreme um, success over the past few years, electing people that really represent the people and not the big corporations, but more the working class, the, the poor, the middle class, but really come from their communities and advocate and are not afraid to speak based on who their contributors are or where their big checks are coming from. And uh, showing that we have that power was really inspiring. And I was one of the people that was inspired by it. And before, whereas I thought, I might not have a chance, you know, because I'm not going to be in the pockets of any big corporations and I am outspoken on my uh, political views, be it domestically or internationally, specifically on Palestinian human rights. Uh, but because of the activism, because of the power of the streets and, and the way we've been able to mobilize, it didn't seem such a crazy thing anymore. And so that's where I thought I would be able to make a, a bigger and maybe a more direct impact. And so I thought I'm going to go for it. Well, uh, uh, let's also be clear. You were born in uh, southeastern Michigan. Uh, your parents migrated from Palestine to Michigan. Your father was a General Motors Union employee and your mother worked as a nurse, the story of many Arab Americans and Palestinian Americans who migrated to Michigan. How did their experience influence your decision-making? You know, my uh, parents came to this country when my mom was really very pregnant with me. She was about eight months pregnant, and they left Palestine, not as refugees, but my father is from a village that is that became part of Israel in 1948. So we're citizens of Israel, but seriously heavily discriminated against because of our uh, race and religion. And my mom was from the West Bank town of Beit Sahor under full Israeli military occupation, um, rights severely curtailed. And my parents, as a young couple looking to start a family, just did not think that they would be able to give their their children the kind of, of freedom and opportunity in uh, whether living inside Israel or living in the occupied territory that they would if they left. And so they made the decision to leave. Uh, I, so I was born and raised here. As you mentioned, my father worked for General Motors, uh, a member of the union. Uh, he worked really hard. Uh, and I saw that. We we didn't have a lot 
when we were younger growing up and, and I'm the oldest of five kids. And at the time it was only my father working. My mother was a nurse in Palestine, but she took to um, raising us when she came here. So it was only when we were uh, all older and in school that she went back to renew. And actually she had to start all over to get her nursing degree all over again, but it was only my father working to support seven people. Never, you know, never taking days off if he didn't have to never turning down an opportunity to work overtime. So I would, I remember seeing him getting up at two o'clock in the morning uh, because I would stay up doing work or other things, but getting up at two o'clock in the morning to make it to work by 4 a.m. and working, I wouldn't see him again till seven o'clock the next night where he would eat, shower, sleep to get up at two o'clock in the morning again. Um, But at the time, you know, like I said, we didn't have much, but we weren't in want of anything. And my father on uh, on that income could support seven people. I was raised with this idea and this deep seated belief that we had freedom here and I could do and be whatever I wanted to. There was that opportunity that they um, came to this country to give me. I don't see that opportunity available for, for our children today. People are working harder than ever and they cannot make ends meet. Uh, we, the cost of daycare is almost, you can't make it. I, I was talking to someone the other day who told me that, you know, she's working, but if her husband worked, his whole salary would go to daycare. So he's staying home with their kids. And you're and talking what, about this from experience. You're uh, a mother yeah. of two, right? Yes, a mother of two myself. Uh, so I, I know that I feel the struggles of people and just don't feel that our politicians are representing our interests. Most of our politicians, certainly not all of them, are representing our interest in Washington. Certainly not the politician who is representing me right now, who has consistently voted against any measure that would help uplift the people of the district that I'm in. She was against the stimulus. She was against right. the, uh, ch- uh, the checks for um the child tax credit. She was against the infrastructure bill. She's definitely against the Build Back Better bill. We deserve better than that because we're always, we're seeing, you know, more and more money into the pockets of the wealthy. And there are no problem giving tax cuts to the wealthy and all of these different perks. But when it comes to talking about uplifting the the poor, the working class, expanding the middle class, We don't have enough money. And that- you're talking, just uh, sorry to interrupt, but you're talking about the incumbent uh, representative, Lisa McLean. Yes. And 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 she's a, Rep- yeah, she's a Republican. Uh, I, I, she described you uh, to Fox News as the same kind of politician as Democratic Socialist Senator Bernie Sanders, as if this is an insult. Uh, everybody <laughs> knows Bernie Sanders from uh, Independent from Vermont. And here is her quote. And she said, Huayda Arraf is a Bernie Sanders-style socialist who does not share the views of Michigan's 10th congressional district. The last thing we need in Congress is another member of the squad. And that's exactly who she would align with if elected. What do you say to this? Well, I would say that both Senator Sanders and every single member of the squad is doing a lot more than Representative McLean is. So as you said, it is definitely not an insult. Uh, These are representatives that are actually fighting every day to represent the the people that are traditionally not heard in Washington because they are not 
the big corporations. They do not have the billions of dollars. And so that is not an insult at all. My policies, I don't say I'm like this person or that person. My policies are always for what is going to uplift people, what is going to make sure that people are able to live, to have dignified jobs, to have their human rights and their civil rights respected. I think whether it's the work that I was doing in Palestine to defend people's human rights or in other countries around the world, or just looking here in my own own community, people are denied basics that should be, you know, guaranteed. And people want the it's, it's simple things, not not handouts. You know, I've done work in trying to advocate for lifting the the uh, awful illegal criminal blockade on Gaza, and and that work was not to bring aid to the people. People don't want to live on handouts and aid, whether in Palestine, whether in in China and Latin America, or here at home where I am in Macomb County in Michigan. People want dignified, well-paying jobs. They want safe communities. They want opportunity for their children. And our representatives are not fighting for that. Again, most of them, and and certainly uh, Lisa McLean, she is consistently, consistently voting and talking in the interest of, of the wealthy and the big corporations and those that give her big checks, not the people she represents. The 10th district is very rural. Most of the area, for example, does not have broadband. Broadband. She voted against the infrastructure bill, which would bring broadband to 400,000 Michiganders that don't have it right now. That would fix our water infrastructure because so many areas throughout Michigan uh, are exposed to and have nothing but contaminated water. And it was just party politics, the the interests not of the community. And I'm tired of that. I'm tired of that because the people deserve better. So uh, the 10th district uh, basically, it seems it's it has gone through redistrict redistricting. Uh, is this going to help your campaign? Right now, Actually, for the first time uh, ever, Michigan has an independent citizen redistricting commission. Before it was always drawn, the new lines were drawn by the legislature, and it's been for the past many years uh, a Republican legislature. So our lines right now are heavily gerrymandered. But for months now, the Independent Citizens Commission has been working, and their task is to get rid of all the gerrymandering, to draw fair lines. Uh, irrespective of of um, partisan politics, so they're supposed to leave all of that out. They're having honestly a a tough time. It's a long. It's been a long, arduous process, and they're not done with it. They um, and honestly, they're probably we won't know the new lines for for a while. Will it help? Uh, the gerrymandering will be hopefully gone and there'll be more fair maps. The 10th district as it is right now, it does lean heavily Republican. It will likely pick up more Democrats with the new lines, but it will probably still lean Republican, which doesn't bother me or scare me or deter me at all. I think actually the the, the Democratic Party or let's say even non-Republicans, even if we're talking third party, I think we've we haven't done a good enough job of going to areas which we think are just Republican leaning. I think we've given up on a lot of areas. We haven't gone into rural communities and really talk to people. Let them know that we want to listen, not just talk at them. What do they need? And so when there is a lot of discontent within the party that has turned a lot of people away. I live right now in Macomb County, which is 
historically traditionally known as the home of the Reagan Democrats. I mean, these were working class people here, which were traditionally represented by the Democratic Party. And now we see that they're not anymore. They've turned against the Democratic Party, felt abandoned by them. And we need to go do the work to get back in. So it doesn't deter me that it might be a heavily Republican district because I intend to get to every corner of this district and make sure that people know that I want to talk, I want to listen, hopefully we'll agree on the policies that will help uplift them and uplift all of us uh, as a result. But even if we don't agree, just to know that we can talk civilly with each other. There is so much um, division right now. And I think that is being fueled by people, unfortunately, like Representative McLean, who, if you follow her on social media, what she puts out publicly, it is all just bashing the other side. And that's not how we work together for the benefit of our country as a whole. Uh, I mentioned that she voted against the infrastructure bill. For example, this infrastructure bill is bringing billions, billions to Michigan. Uh, that To vote against it not because we don't need it. We, there is no dispute that we need this infrastructure bill. Voting against it just so not to give the other side a win. That's not working for your district, your state, or your country. We need to be thinking about wins for our country. And when we're just tearing each other down, ripping ourselves up on the inside, then we don't have a strong country. And uh, I hope, I hope that my campaign and my message going into even the most Republican areas will be one of, even if we disagree, we can talk about it and we can find ways to respect each other, have civil discourse and work for something that is going to benefit all of us. So I'm actually very much looking forward to, to that campaign and, and hopefully a win. But more than anything, it would be it will be a, a worthwhile, uh, deep and um, and necessary, necessary campaign. Democrats face uh, an uphill, uh, really, battle uh, this coming elections. I was looking at the most recent poll, I think, by CBS it conducted, and there is a 10% difference. in it's a poll that was conducted about uh, where folk, folks across the United States are leaning. 51% Republican, 41% Democrat. I mean, how are you... And everyone else going to close that gap. I mean, you have about less than a year, really, to do it. Well, you're absolutely right. And that's what I was saying. I think we have not done a good enough job of communicating our message, of going where we need to go, areas that are traditionally marginalized, uh, maybe a little bit further off, maybe more rural we're not going there or we haven't been going there for a number of different reasons, but no reason that is excusable. We are elected to represent the people. That's all people. It's not only people in urban areas. It's not only people that agree with us uh, right now. It is all people. Uh, and so, like I said, I want to be do this work that is necessary of getting to this area. And if I can talk to every last voter or would be voter, uh, I would, which is one of the reasons that I am um, hoping to get as many people supporting as possible, as many volunteers, because I it's a big district, the 10th district, it's the thumb area, and I want to hit every single part of it. And that's the work that needs to be done. At the end of the day, it is the, you know, I, let me just preface this by saying I'm not huge lifelong Democrat. Let's say there are a lot of things about both parties 
uh, that I disagree with. There are a lot of things about the Democrat Party that I disagree with, but I'm more closely aligned with the Democrat Party. And so I'm running as a Democrat. And I think that the, the uh, program of the Democratic Party, the social program, is much better for the majority of Americans, the poor, the working class. It, it is a, a program to also expand uplift the poor and the working class and to expand the middle class. And that's what we want. You want this kind of vibrant society. But if you keep pursuing a policy that puts money in the pockets of, of the rich and you don't have enough for the poor or the middle and working class, we're going to eviscerate our, our middle class. People are going to become poorer. And, and capitalism, as we know it, will collapse for those that you know want to defend capitalism. But it needs to be a capitalism that works for everybody. And that's the message we need to take, that our programs are intended to make government work for the everyday American, not just for the wealthy and powerful. And like I said, it it is a lot of work and not a lot of time, but we're ready to work. I'm going to go back to your tweet because uh, I have uh, another quote for you. Uh, I mean, you're basically sending a message that you have a thick skin and yeah, and and you've seen a lot, and you've been through a lot. You barely launched your campaign. You've already come under an attack. I I, I was like, I wasn't surprised, but to look at this headline and intro, by uh, in an article on Fox News website, and this is the headline: Michigan activist who promoted the use of violent resistance against Israelis announces run for Congress. And then the intro goes into saying Araf is a co-founder of the International Solidarity Movement, an anti-Israel group that was investigated by the FBI for possible ties to terrorists. Are you surprised? Not surprised at all. I knew these attacks would fly. They've been coming for the last 20 years. It's nothing new. I did think that um, they might ignore me for a while, so we'd have maybe come next month or as we got as the campaign picked up. But literally from day one, from day one, the the attacks came. And again, they were expected. They are malicious lies. They've been debunked before. But journalists and people that just want to be, be lazy about it or already have their views that don't really care to know the truth, they just care to spread lies. They're going to write stories like that, and then. Um, you know, again, those that don't want to know the truth will just pick it up and spread it. And this is because there is an agenda. There is an agenda that certain people have, unfortunately, that is based on demonizing the other side, silencing the other side. They don't want to hear my message or the message of others and those that I've been working with and represent. Um, the, a message that calls for freedom human rights, equality for everybody that dismantles or works against um, supremacy of any race, religion, or ethnicity over anybody else. When it comes to the work that I've done on Palestine, it's been you know, a, a huge effort to silence me and to silence others that work for Palestinian human rights because our message is dangerous to them. They don't want to hear it. They want to support and maintain Israel the way it is, which is a settler colonial apartheid state that is severely oppressing the indigenous Palestinians of the land. And those of us working for Palestinian human rights are not saying uh, kick the Jews or kick the Israelis out. We're saying, no, we need in this area, we need everybody to 
be uplifted, everybody to have their human rights respected, everybody to be able to live equally. And the Palestinians that were kicked out, that were disenfranchised, that were abused, of course, there needs to be uh, reckoning and reconciliation. It, it can't last like this. Um, and again, so you go back to, to Fox News or the Zionists and some of the other rags that were have been printing lies over the past few days. It's just to silence me. If you go and actually look at what they're saying. Um, they're taking certain quotes of mine out of context. They're saying we've been investigated with by the FBI. Yep, the FBI did do a two-year investigation that was a complete waste of our um, tax dollars and uh, and the time of the FBI. It was triggered by the say your organization, actually, International Solidarity Movement, the one that your two co-founded, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. It was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. It has worked with nonviolent organizations uh, across this country and around the world um, and with no, no other Nobel Peace laureates. And like I said, yes, the FBI investigates, but it was a complete waste of their time. They found after two years, nothing, absolutely nothing. But of course, the Fox News article won't tell you that. Uh, and again, it's just a silence. I'm not going to uh, respond to them at all. They, they want to... Uh, you know, trigger me into being defensive. I'm not defensive at all. I'm very proud of the work that I've done. And I hope to take that the experience of that work of working with communities that are oppressed and that are marginalized and thinking of creative ways to advocate and to fight and to harness our power, to bring it here also with people here again, that aren't heard, that are marginalized and oppressed and, and work for the rights of, of my community here so that people are, have what they need, not just to, to survive, but to thrive. And in, in conjunction with that, and almost directly related and a necessary part of that is to make sure that our foreign policy is also respecting uh, people's rights, human rights. And, and so that will include, and my platform will be that the United States should not be supporting or colluding in any way with countries that um, abuse human rights that are serial abusers of human rights. Of course, Israel is one of them, but it is not the only one. Just recently, an arms deal was approved to Saudi Arabia that has been waging a vicious war on Yemen that has killed near, nearly a quarter of a million people. We should not be selling our weapons to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, we have a, a foreign policy, unfortunately, that for too long has been not living up to the ideals that we say we stand for as a country, freedom, democracy, human rights. Fortunately, our, our foreign policy has been pushing and promoting just the opposite of that. And I will certainly stand for policies that better represent what I think the people of this country want to see, that we really are, can be a, a light and a beacon. Um, foreign policy is not on my agenda in terms of like right now, my campaign, uh, it's not... The uh, things that my the constituents here are necessarily concerned about, but I think that they will be concerned about the fact that billions of their tax dollars are going to fund human rights abusing countries. Uh, that that is an issue. What can we do with our tax dollars? How can we stop them from uh, from being used to commit? human rights abuses and better invest them at home or in programs that uplift people rather than tear them down.
Let's talk about your district. Uh, I was reading that it uh, it's really diverse, it encompasses a diverse and uh, uh, the more urbanized city of Port uh, Huron, and that's a home for several minority groups. Uh, almost 6% foreign-born population in 2019. Also, the census uh, so shows a sizable uh, Arab-American uh, population in, in, in that city. I mean, what is what do you feel is the most urgent need? Uh, because I don't know. I mean, I've always read about Michigan. They've been struggling. Uh, the economy has suffered terribly, especially in the past decade. I mean, and jobs have been leaving. I mean, is there a change in this, uh, uh, basically, perception? Uh, no, <laughs> there hasn't been. In terms of the diversity, yes, we feel and we see the district becoming more diverse. If you're relying on the census, unfortunately, there are so many categories in the census that are are, are not represented Arab American, you know, they're counted as white. So if you look at the census, it'll tell you that about 90% of the district is white. But that includes Arab Americans, it includes a lot of immigrant communities. We have a lot of uh, Macedonians here, Germans, Italians, Greek, these kind of vibrant immigrant communities that I hope to connect, uh, connect very closely with. In terms of the economy, yeah, you know, like I said, my dad, since coming here, worked for General Motors. The other day, he reminded me, he said, my factory is not there anymore. It closed a long time ago. He's retired now, but so many factory jobs have left and, and the service industry or other jobs that are available now, the minimum wage hasn't been increased in, in a decade. You have to, in Michigan, to afford a two-bedroom house to rent, to rent a two-bedroom apartment or place. You have to work 70, more than 70 hours a week. So nearly two full-time jobs just to be able to afford a two-bedroom uh, apartment or two-bedroom house in Michigan. That is that is a criminal, really. Nobody who works a full-time job should be struggling to put a roof over their head or over their children's heads. We have just in Macomb County alone, 1,200 students that are homeless. And that's not all children. That is just students. What about the children that are not registered in schools uh, that are infants or under the age of five? In the richest country in the world, to have students that can't find enough to eat or that are on the streets, not just students, but, but children, is a crime, is a crime, because we have enough money to make sure that nobody it, dies of hunger, that nobody dies for a lack of shelter, and that we are able to support our fellow citizens in being able to, again, not just survive, but also thrive. The other day, I was reading a story in the local paper about a, a mother of four, a survivor of, of domestic abuse, who is and works, she works a full-time job, and she is homeless. A mother of four, survivor of domestic abuse, full-time working, and can't afford to put a roof over her, her kids' heads. That, that shouldn't happen anywhere, but certainly not in the richest country in the world. Michiganders have elected another Palestinian-American, Representative Rashida Tlaib. Are they ready for another one? Well, I think what they have in Rashida is a fierce fighter for the rights uh, and the interests of her constituents. She really is. And I don't think that 
so, but that's her as a person. That's not her as a Palestinian American. I think you, you, sh- I am very proud of being a Palestinian American. I think there's a lot in me that comes from my cultural background experiences and, and my history of coming from a people that is so, you know, that have smooth, that have uh, strength and this kind of a survival and fighting spirit. But I don't think Americans should look at us as being the other, as being a, a hyphenated individual where Palestinian Americans or Arab Americans are somehow different. Uh, America, the story of America is an immigrant immigrant story. And we, Rashida, myself, we are the American story. You know, we were born and raised here. We uh, love this country, want this country to be better and, and are willing to work to make it better. So they should be ready for more Palestinian Americans, more Italian Americans, Chinese Americans. We are all in the end Americans. And I think we need to better look at each other as that. Respecting culture, of course, and not just respecting, but celebrating, but not looking at you know, um, somebody that is from a different culture or a different country as being the other. In the end, we're here, we're citizens, we're working for the benefit of of this country and its citizens, so we are Americans. To learn more about uh, Huayda Arraf, go to Huayda for Congress, that's uh, her website, and you learn about her and her agenda and her campaign. Uh, Huayda Arraf, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Jamal. Well, that's the voice and the face of Huayda Araf, um, human rights activist, civil rights activist, Palestinian-American, who has decided to run for Congress in the 10th District in Michigan. And um, I'm ready to vote for her now, Jamal. I mean, she's not in the district. Well, where- <laughs> you can't. You're in California. But... But you, I would if I were in the 10th District. You were born district. in Michigan. Your I was born in Michigan. in Michigan. I mean, yes. you went yes. to undergraduate uh, school in Michigan. And so that's your home state, man. So I want to go back to your question. And the question is, you know, is Michigan ready for two Palestinian American women to represent various districts in the state of Michigan? And I would say absolutely and unequivocally. You know, the Michigan, like the rest of the country, Jamal, is a divided uh, state, divided electorate, you know, between... Uh, you know, right-wing Trumpists and very progressive, you know, uh, elements, you know, basically in Detroit, in Ann Arbor, and some of the other universities, you have very progressive elements of the Democratic Party basically having a very big leadership role uh, uh, in the electorates. And the Democratic uh, districts, you know, the 10th may be one of them, um, are heavily uh, democratic and have a good chance of of recommitting to that. But let's be very clear: Michigan also is a Trump state, and um, you know there are there are extremely uh, right wing extreme groups. Let's not forget Jamal that Michigan was the state where right wing vigilantes took over the right. the the you know the Capitol in Lansing. And, you know, there was an attempt to, you know, um, kidnap, capture, and potentially kill uh, the governor of Michigan. And those six people are born and raised and from Michigan, and they're now serving jail time. So 
this is not an easy state to be a Palestinian. It's not an easy state to be a Palestinian woman in. It's not an easy state to run for Congress if you happen to be a Palestinian woman. So, and at this particular time when Joe Biden has such low approval ratings and is tanking, even though Hueda is a really, you know, she's bright, she's articulate, she's hardworking, and I, if I were in her district, I would definitely vote for her, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah, so, so Hueda Araf uh, actually embodies the Palestinian-American story, the immigrant story, the yes. Arab-American story, the woman of color. I mean, she was born in southeastern Michigan. Her par- parents... And this is something that kind of uh, is close to you, Jess. Right. They migrated from Palestine to Michigan. Her father worked at General Motors. He was a union employee. Your dad was with Ford. So right. that's, that's the, and then that's something maybe for you to explain why a lot of Palestinian Americans and Arab Americans went to uh, uh, Michigan, in, especially in the turn of the century and, and, and so forth. And then, of course, you know, she went to college and she, she went to law school. She's a, she's a human rights attorney and, 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 a, and, and a civil rights activist. And the 10th district, and you said something important, because don't look at Michigan now just because you have, uh, you know, already a Palestinian-American Democrat there, Rashida Tlaib. But the district she's running in, she's now vying to unseat a Republican. So the Republican is Lisa McLean, you know, who already attacked Huey Darraf. She said, oh, if you elect her, she's going to be part of the squad and she's (laughs) going to be another Bernie Sanders. You know, I mean, many people don't look at this as as a (laughs) negative thing, but she said she's going to be part of the squad. She's going to be another Bernie Sanders. Fox News already attacked her. You know, I mean, they didn't spare any time. Her campaign just launched. And uh, so tell me why. I mean, it seems a lot of Palestinian Americans basically are in Michigan and Arab Americans. Yeah, let's we should talk about that, Jamal. I mean, Michigan is home to uh, the largest Arab American communities uh, outside of the Middle East and Arab world in North Africa. I mean, it's got a long history of strong Arab American and Palestinian roots. At the turn of the 20th century, from the 19th into the 20th century, had mass immigration from Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine of people looking for work. And basically, they came uh, to Michigan, by the way, because this was at the time of the, you know, ramping up of the Industrial Revolution. Cars were being manufactured. There were jobs to be had in Michigan. And so the fact that Huweda's father worked for GM, my father worked for Ford, it was a very common thing for Arab Americans who came to the United States, who landed in Michigan, to work at, in the automotive industry. Um, my father was an engineer. Um, you know, I worked at Ford during the summers, you know, when I was in, in college. The part of the Ford factory is in Dearborn, Michigan, and people know and have heard about Dearborn. It's the largest concentration of Arab Americans in any city in in the country right now. 
Um, you, you've been to Dearborn many times. Uh, you can go through the entire city of Dearborn, Jamal, and all the signage is in Arabic, and you don't even have to speak English in Dearborn. You can get I around. I don't have to speak English. I speak food. <laughs> the food so is... That's so what, that's what I spoke in Dearborn. Right, Just right. looking at all the Middle Eastern restaurants and the Kinafe exactly. and great exactly. food. Exactly, so, exactly. So I can so, survive there easily. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the thing is, Jamal, here's the thing. Most of the people in Dearborn are really, you know, have pretty progressed. Not everybody. I mean, it's it would be a mistake to say all the Arab Americans in Dearborn or in Michigan are progressive. I will say the majority of them are lean toward the left and lean toward center left in the Democratic Party with large numbers of them being progressive. But we also have our share of Republicans who are Arab American. So it's a very diverse electorate in Michigan, as it is in most places of the country, and Huwaitan understands that. But she will appeal to uh, communities above and beyond just the Arab American community. She will appeal to people in that district, in the 10th district, who have concerns about putting food on the table, concerns about the economic vitality, concerns about climate change, and concerns about, you know, foreign policy, she will appeal to a, a large segment of that community. But Well, I, yeah. I just assume uh, when your dad was working, God bless his soul, and her, her dad, uh, Michigan was the auto capital of the world, and Correct. people were employed, and middle class uh, was flourishing. And then when I went to visit Michigan, it was in a, in a major decline. That's right. Un high unemployment, uh, buildings boarded up. It seems that there is a comeback. I mean, yesterday, the president, Biden, he was right. in Michigan because now with this, again, there is a comeback for the auto industry with the EV, with uh, Ford making electric vehicles and, and, and GM. Do you think, do you see that? I mean, do you hear from your family that there is a comeback yeah. or we're far from it? Yeah, so that's really a good question. I still think that Detroit and Michigan in particular are a tale of two cities, to use <clears throat> to use the uh, analogy, because, you know, I, I when I go back to visit my family and I, and I always drive through downtown Detroit and I go to all the areas that I remember, you know, growing up and seeing, I will tell you that there are pockets of renaissance. There are pockets where there is increased economic activity, both in terms of small businesses and the large economies of the automotive industry, because it's the car companies, it's parts companies, it's it's a lot. And with the revitalization of the EV, uh, you know, um, coming down the pike for Ford and GM, which have invested billions of dollars in it, that's really good news for the Detroit, metropolitan Detroit area. Okay, but saying that, you still have large pockets of Detroit, Jamal, which were burned down during the 60s and have never been touched. You have large income inequalities in Michigan. You have an African-American community, the dominant community in, in Detroit, which is still economically disadvantaged, which still lives at the extremes of food insecurity and health insecurity. So it's a tale of two cities still, and uh, it's important to recognize that the potential is there. You know, maybe the, 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 it'll turn a little bit, but, you know, it's a challenge still, especially in Detroit proper. Now, the rest of the state, you know, if the EV 
infrastructure gets built out and the economy gets going again, there's there's hope. But rest assured, Jamal, outside of Detroit, Ann Arbor, Flint, some of the big progressive uh, areas of the state, you have large pockets of extreme conservatism. You can, if you go to Detroit now, I mean, if you go to Michigan now, Jamal, you will see Trump post Trump banners Thale. and posters Thale. everywhere. And you'll see MAGA hats everywhere. So um, let's be clear about that. Detroit, Michigan is a reflection of the rest of the country when it comes to a state that's divided, a country that's divided. And as this is one, you know, and Haweda knows this, this is going to be her biggest challenge, you know, running in 2022 because we're an extremely divided uh, country and state. I've recently seen uh, MAGA hats in Wyoming, uh, just, and I was like thinking to myself, <laughs> the elections are over, aren't they? No, they're uh, not. Apparently, apparently not. So on this topic, um, and you've mentioned that Democrats are facing, uh, you know, an uphill battle. They're facing also an aggressive redistricting by Republicans in some states, uh, as well as the uh, the soaring uh, disapproval ratings uh, for President Biden and and the Democrat Democratic Party, as we've seen what happened in Virginia right. recently, and that's what why I want to talk to you about because you keep saying that Trump is coming back and you're scaring me. Yeah, well, I think you know. He- here's what you have: you have a divided country. You have the Republicans who are redistricting and gerrymandering so that they're going to have even more op- more potential for representation in the House of Congress. You have a lot of Democratic congressmen and now senators who are not running for re-election, who have decided to retire. And then you have the voting laws, which are being stripped away to protect the rights of individuals to vote in a safe and secure manner. So... In my mind, that's a perfect storm for Trump to this day, Jamal, to this day, continuing to question the results of the election of 2020 to call it fake and rigged. And, you know, you have Republicans who are supporting people like Paul Gosar. Paul Gosar was sanctioned in the uh, House of Representatives yesterday for posting an anime on his Twitter, you know, basically beheading and killing another member of Congress, uh, you know, yes. AOC. And and didn't apologize. Didn't did, think no, much but he reposted it. it. Jamal, he reposted it after he was sanctioned. I thought he removed it. No, it was reposted. And here's the other thing. He was not contrite. He defended himself. And you had, you had uh, McCarthy, who's the minority leader in the House, defending the actions still. And not who coming. did he go after? He went after Ilhan Omar. Of I mean, course. Something of totally course. unrelated. Because she criticized Israel, right. so he 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 picked on the one Senate, I mean one Congress uh, woman who's right. who's uh, who's uh, Muslim, who wears a hijab, who's a woman of color, to make that comparison. Well, she did this; it's tit for tat. It's kind of was right. Ridiculous. But they, what they didn't do, Jamal, what McCarthy didn't do, it, what none of the. Republicans did. They didn't condemn that one member of the Congress basically sanctioned, advocated for grave bodily injury and death to another member of Congress. No, they didn't. And they by the didn't way, condemn he, it. And, and by the way, he he, he said that uh, Ilhan Omar wasn't condemned and she was condemned by the Democratic Party. By Nancy Pelosi. 
She by was Nancy condemned Pelosi. by Nancy Pelosi, so, so by Chuck Schumer. Spreading was, misinformation exactly. on national TV. So, but, but wait a minute. I, I just want to say, okay. okay, but just really quick, because I know we, we don't have a lot of time today. I'm going to keep saying it. The potential for the Democrats to get slammed and lose the House and the Senate is greater than 50-50. And the possibility of Donald Trump being our next president is greater than 50-50. So the odds are really looking bad right now for the Democrats across all sectors, the House, the Senate, and the executive branch. Well, that's what I was going to talk to you about also, because I was reading yesterday that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is launching a new multi-million dollar effort to engage and mobilize voters of color, you know, which which should be all along, right? But well, this what, is a new yeah. campaign yeah. to mobilize voters of color ahead of the midterm elections, including investments in local organizing and seven-figure research and, and polling effort. The plan includes an initial $30 million investment to hire local community organizers, launch targeted advertising campaigns, aimed at non-white communities as well as building voter protection and education program. Do you think this is uh, uh, too little, too late? I think it's too little, too late, Jamal. And we, we have to remember that the Democratic Party itself is fractured. You have, within the Democratic Party, the Republicans are unified. I mean, you have Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, two outsiders for the Republican Party. The rest are like Paul Gosart and McCarthy. They're lockstep uh, 100% behind Trump. It's a Trump party still. The Democratic Party is fractured. It's divided. It's, you know, between the progressive and moderate and, and center left. And, you know, you have so many different divisions. And this week, I think even now, there may be voting on the you know, the the next stage of the infrastructure plan, the next $1.7 to $1.8 trillion plan, and there's no guarantee that it will pass the House, let alone the Senate. So the fact that the, the part, the Democrats are divided, you have Biden, whose poll numbers are pulling below 40% right now, you have inflation that's out of control. It's, it's to say that we're going to recruit communities of color right now who haven't benefited from these policies yet, frankly, in a big way. I mean, yes, they passed the first, you know, Build Back Better plan. That's that's really great. But money into the pockets of people who really need it is is it's not translating itself into energy unless the the people see the writing on the wall, which is that we could have another four plus years of you know crazy autocratic rule coming from the Republicans. Uh, I think it's looking pretty bad right now for the Democrats. So what do you think uh, uh, the Democrats have to do now? It's, it's mobilizing than, the vote. In less than a year. They to have to get out the, the vote. The House majority it, it, and less than three years to maintain the White House. It's, it's, it's all going to be a question of mobilizing. And because the Republicans are chomping at the bit to vote, if every eligible Democratic voter voted compared to every eligible Republican voter voted, the Democrats would win the House, the Senate, and the presidency. The problem is motivation. The problem is energy. The problem is getting people out to vote for Democrats. The energy is just not there right now, Jamal. People are suffering. I mean, inflation is really high. It's 
you know, here in California, our, our viewers and listeners may not know, but gas is like five to six dollars a gallon now. Uh, right. Prices prices for you know food have gone up twenty to sixty to seventy to eighty percent. We have a supply chain crisis in the United States. We, you know, the price of cars and used cars has gone up tremendously. So. I am not optimistic about 2022, frankly. And in terms of, you know, 2024, the Democrats have a lot of work to do. They have to mobilize and get people out to vote. Well, we're going to keep talking about this, uh, and hopefully we can invite uh, other people who are running or uh, for election or in, in, in government to talk about it. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. We have a few minutes uh, to talk about a very important story. Yes. Uh, uh, Jess, and and this is, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. has acknowledged for the very first time that uh, previously undisclosed airstrikes in Syria carried out days before, uh, before the fall of ISIS in 2019 killed multiple civilians, including women and children. Yes. And this is according to the U.S. Uh, Central Command. The disclosure, uh, we should give also credit to the New York Times, uh, follow the publication of the New York Times investigation into the strike, uh, the strikes. Uh, and one in particular, which is really like uh, three years from uh, to date, you know, I mean, no more, uh, on March 18, 2019, a uh, U.S. allied Syrian Democratic Forces called for air support. Right. And the U.S. responded and then used F-15 for a strike. And, and, and the F-15 dropped three 500-pound precision-guided bombs. That's the drop, killing dozens of people. Unbelievable. Now, when, when they've sent the, uh, uh, the unmanned... Uh, the drones. I guess drone UAV operator reported uh, possible civilians in the area uh, when the bombs were dropped. Uh, and, and, and at the time, they just acknowledged maybe one or two civilians dying and said, uh, you know, kind of like ignored it. And now we find out, and this is from the Pentagon, and I'm using in quotes here, and this is something like, happened the same thing happened in Kabul right you know with the right. botched uh, strike in Kabul found that execution errors that's what they say execution errors yeah. led to to what the pentagon officials refer to tragic mistake this is jamal beyond tragic this is a cover up and a war crime you asked at the beginning is this a cover up of a war crime it's both killing innocent civilians when you have information and the way it works, Jamal, if you're doing it right, if you suspect there are civilians, then you call it off, full stop. So they knew that there could be civilians. They didn't call it off. We think dozens of people were killed. It's likely probably more because this is just the Pentagon numbers. And they covered it up for three years. So in my humble opinion, it's a cover-up and it's a war crime. And my question to you is, will this go to the ICC? Well, the... Um, United States with Trump decided to not be part of the ICC anymore. I don't know what the Biden administration's relationship is to the ICC now, but this should be referred to the ICC as a war crime. 
So early on, actually, you said uh, the key word, a cover-up, because in its annual report, and I'm talking about the uh, Department of Defense, on civilian casualties in 2019, the Defense Department makes no mention, no mention. of a strike in Syria on March 18, 2019, right. or the killing of any civilians. And, and, and that's... The mistake, you know, and I hate to use that, whatever they refer, refer to it, uh, uh, what did they say, tragic mistake or collateral damage, you hear that collateral damage. That's one thing. But then not to say anything about it, and that's the cover-up. And I that's think right. that's, that's right. I think, the worst thing uh, that possibly could have happened is is the not acknowledging this, apologizing, compensating the uh, civilian families, you know, I mean, that's the least you can do. And rather now we were finding about this three years later because of a, an investi a, a investigation by the New York Times. Well, Jamal, we'll be following this story. I'm sorry to say that it's probably once more information comes out, it's going to be worse. And the United States had and the military have to be held accountable for this. It's not just a tragedy. I, it's not a mistake. This was a war crime, and uh, to call it a mistake is insulting to the men, women, and children who were killed. So we'll be following it. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episodes. And we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>